Welcome to the All In Your Head podcast, where we get all in your head. We are a mental health podcast focused on anything and everything mental health. We'll have special guests ranging from mental health experts, mental health advocates, and just everyday people with real struggles. We will share laughs, we will share cries, but most importantly, we will have real conversations about mental health. So with that being said, let's get all in your head. Woohoo! Let's get into it because I feel like we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. And we've talked briefly before, and I actually did some research and checked out your website a little bit as well before we we met. But I'm specifically interested in your role as a financial therapist, mm-hmm. both professionally and personally. And so let's just start there. What is that, a financial therapist? Before I had met you a, a few weeks ago. I never even heard of a financial therapist. I always felt like I needed one, but I never <laughs> knew one existed. So what is that? Yeah. So I think unlike the other financial professionals people have heard of, like advisors, CPAs and whatnot, uh, a financial therapist kind of fills the gap when it comes to emotions with money. So everything from negative beliefs we have about money, dread, shame, guilt, our whole role is to help people heal their relationship with money. So if they have this negative experience, How do we help them remove those money blocks to have a healthier relationship, especially if they're a business owner or in my case, half my caseload is mental health therapists. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a whole nother topic that we'll get into. Yeah. But how how did you even get into this? Well, um, I was working on a project in 2020 as part of the pandemic. So I was suffering from a, probably a second bout of workaholism, which is a whole different topic. (laughs) Um, But that was something that created stability for me of like, oh, the world is uncertain. I'm going to just keep working. And so one of the projects I was working on is, was, and continues to be um, interviewing other colleagues who provide professional services, everything from SEO to branding to selling your business. And so one of the people I came across was Wendy Wright here in Denver, um, and she's a financial therapist who's been doing this for eight or nine years, which is rare. It's a relatively young subset of therapy. Yeah. Um, it's been coined since 2010, so not that long. And so I interviewed her and as she was talking to me about what financial therapy was, much like the conversation we're having today, I was like, light bulb, this Mm -hmm. is what I could do. I got excited about it, which in the midst of a pandemic, I told myself, pay attention to this. If you're getting excited in the midst of workaholism and burnout, maybe this is an outlet for you. Um, So a couple of weeks later, my little entrepreneurial spirit reached out to her and said, hey, I really am interested in this. Would you mentor me? Would you Mm -hmm. teach me how to do what you do? And so we started our mentorship relationship. Uh, Now I'm a contractor under her business. I have my own side of it in my business and the rest is history. Have you ever had trouble with disengaged patients in your group therapy sessions? Duh. How about patients who can repeat most topics back verbatim, but still end up back in treatment again and again? Mm -hmm. The Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy Bridges That Gap. They provide training for counselors and therapists on maximizing patient engagement and recovery skill building in the group therapy setting so that patients can successfully apply what they've learned outside the four walls of therapy. Upon completion of the course, participants receive 10 NADAC-accredited CEUs and an official credential as a Certified Group Therapy Expert, or CGTE. To learn more about the much-needed training and apply for credentialing, contact them via their website at grouptherapycertification.com or email at certification at grouptherapycertification.com. I told you I checked out your website before we met. I think you might be having a third bout. (laughs) (laughs) Just from everything that's on there, huh? (laughs) Yeah, or maybe that was just part of your second bout. I don't know, but... Yeah, the byproduct, the result. Uh Exactly, all the lingering (laughs) effects. So 
why let's talk about finances for a second and why it causes so much stress and and you know i i know it causes me stress as well and and uh, i joked around uh before we did this that part of the reason why i'm meeting with you is to get a free therapy session <laughs> and so <laughs> where does this financial trauma come from why do people have such an issue with money yeah i mean i think this is why half of the financial therapists on record are mentally health mental health trained so mental health therapist first mm-hmm. financial therapist second And it's because some of the attachment trauma and the childhood stuff that we live and breathe with our mental health clients applies here. Um, So for a lot of clients that start financial therapy, it might be a question of what's your first memory of money Mm. and having them go into that of like, is it a memory that was positive? Like, oh my gosh, I got an allowance or my grandma gave me $10 in my birthday card and I felt rich. Like what, what did that look like? Versus someone who says my first memory of money was the parents saying we don't have enough or you can't have that, or we're not going to have Christmas this year or something along that negative vein with money. And so when people start in that place, which is what we call money healing, that bucket Mm -hmm. of financial therapy, I think is the most robust work is saying, let's go back in time. Let's think about what your parents modeled for you, your first bosses, your relationships, your own messages around money. A person can have 50 to 200 money messages that shape what we think and feel and how we behave with money. And depending on how many of those are negative, it really speaks to why a lot of us struggle with money as adults. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of people who have a history of what I call financial trauma. I don't know if that's a real term. It is. But they, mm-hmm. but they have financial trauma and they interpret or they do something totally different with it. I work with a lot of business professionals and many of them come from a place of humble beginnings, even poverty, mm-hmm. and they use it to motivate them. Absolutely. And I also work with people who started off in poverty and they've stayed in poverty for different reasons. And so mm-hmm. what do you have any thoughts or insight as to what really separates those two buckets of, of experiences? I'm sure that part of it is about opportunities. Part of it's probably about privilege. And mm-hmm. I think the other is that self-sabotage, imposter syndrome combination um, that you might have someone who comes from humble beginnings, who's very motivated to say, I will never feel this way again. Yeah. I will never be here again. Um, And maybe they go full force into workaholism or entrepreneurship or something that makes them feel in control of their money and hope for the best and hope that that's positive. And then there are folks that as soon as they come up against a growth edge, self-sabotage that to be like, oh, I'm making six figures. I don't like how this feels or this is so uncomfortable that subconsciously they might start to sabotage their business. Uh, And that's what I'm kind of seeing with some of our mental health professionals is like they're doing well but they don't know what they don't know, or they've come from humble beginnings and this feels foreign. And so it's just a really uncomfortable place to be. And the messages they're getting from themselves aren't quite nice. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. And, and you know, just because someone has made a lot of money doesn't mean that they've cured their financial trauma. Because I've worked with people who their quest for money has caused them a lot of other issues in their life with their families, where they spend their time, their their stress levels, maybe even turns to addiction sometimes. So just because you didn't make money and now you do, doesn't mean that you solved that, that issue. Well, and I think even some of our financial professionals would echo that where they're like, I'm really good with my money, or I have um, a solid understanding of numbers or investments or portfolios. But then you ask them what their emotional relationship with money is. And they're like, oh, it's a mess. (laughs) I can do well with numbers because that feels concrete and safe. But as soon as you ask them how they feel about their money, whether it's a message of there's never enough, I can never make enough, 
a common message I have heard over the last few months is money is hard work or money takes hard work to get. Mm. And so there are people who much to what you're saying have relationships that suffer or they never see their kids because if that's the narrative, they're going to keep working, convincing themselves that this is the only way to gain money. Yeah, that's really interesting. I created a model called the Spire Performance. And one of the sections of the Spire Performance is security, which looks at threats, looks at weaknesses, and a threat for people oftentimes is money. So we have this conversation around their finances and their comfort around their finances. And I typically ask a question similar to, do you feel comfortable with the amount of money that you have? But I've never asked the question, how do you feel about money? So that's that's <laughs> helpful to me because there's a difference there. Yeah. Because you can feel you can be very comfortable with your amount of money, feel like you have enough money or, or more money than what you even will ever need. But when you ask that question, how do you feel about money? That could elicit a different response for sure. Absolutely. Someone with millions of dollars can still say money is driving my life or all I think about is money. You know, like I think there is a population that believes that having enough money would mean comfort, security, freedom, independence from a lot of things like we kind of glorify that if you've made it you have money and yet there are plenty of people who are multimillionaires who would say this actually has caused me more problems to have this much money or like a lottery winner who's like I don't know what to do with this I just want to get rid of it as quickly as possible so I'm going to blow it on all the things or donate it to a bunch of places because this doesn't feel right yeah I also do a lot of value work with people and some people just don't value money Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I don't know if I believe them. <laughs> and <laughs> mind you, consider the source. I think it's a lot easier to say that you don't value money if you have it as a side note. Mm. But you obviously need money to survive and you need money to pay bills and have certain things. But for a lot of people, it's not a high value. Like they want to make money. They want to have enough to to do the things that they need to do. But it's not, they don't spend a lot of time, attention, focus on making more money. You know, I came from very humble beginnings, came from poverty. And I was even taught to a certain extent that money was bad, that uh-huh. money, money was evil. And I think that there are certain cultures that there, there's that, those feelings too. And then that influenced their, their current uh, and future relationships with money. If you feel like it's bad or it's evil, um, that can certainly play a factor. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I have a lot of my clients watch the movie Knives Out as their therapy homework, <laughs> uh, because it's it's basically a family that is fighting over inheritance. And there's a, bun- a bunch of money disorders that show up in the characters and how they conduct themselves. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions I ask someone who watches the movie is, who did you relate to the most? And who were you repulsed by? Because who they're repulsed by might be hitting some nerves or some financial trauma, or something that feels really really solid in their life of like, oh, that's my grandparent, or that's my dad, or that's me when I'm my most unhealthy. And so it can add a lot of really rich conversation to financial therapy, which the crux of financial therapy is processing, you know, what Mm -hmm. shows up when I ask them what number makes them feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. what shows up when I say, tell me what your bank account looks like. When I say the word savings, what shows up for you? And everyone has different reactions to words, as well as to the actual concepts of money. And I really appreciate you saying that a lot of us were raised that too much money is bad. It's mm-hmm. corrupt. Yeah. Um, and doing my own money work to be a financial therapist, one of my aha moments was when it was pointed out to me that there's a generation raised on Disney movies that have a reinforced narrative that money is bad. The people mm-hmm. in power who are always bad or evil had the money, the evil king or queen, Scrooge, right? Like we had these things reinforced again and again that 
it's not even just our own internal beliefs. It's society telling us that money changes you and not for the better. One of the things that I saw on your website was this term money scripts. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like almost like a belief system about money, but what are money scripts? Yeah. So there's technically four categories right now that are just like the umbrella catch all terms that then the money messages we've been talking about so far would fall under. So the four scripts, the first one is avoidance. So to be money avoidant has certain behaviors attached to it. We can assume a person who tests as money avoidant feels anxious, maybe nauseous every time they think about money. Maybe it was modeled when they were a kid that we just don't talk about money. Um, In adulthood, it might look like bills that have been shoved in a drawer. I don't want to deal with it. Or here's debt collectors, or here's something that feels really awful. It also can be someone who has no understanding of their numbers and feels avoidant even thinking about logging into their bank account, which has been exposure therapy sometimes mm-hmm, for my mm-hmm. clients of like, yeah. let's log in together. What's showing up for you? Yeah. Um, they say that 70% of mental health professionals are money avoidant. Mm. So this is a lot of our colleagues. And I say this with utmost compassion and zero judgment because the running joke is we'd rather talk about our sex lives than our money mm-hmm. lives. It's yeah. that uncomfortable. That category is significant and people will be like, yep, I've totally been there. I have not looked at my bank account. I've signed off on a student loan, not realizing what it would entail, like that people use credit cards to live a lifestyle. I mean, all of that could fall under money avoidant because it's just this disconnect from their money. The second script would be money worship. And much to what that sounds like, it's a person who might have a belief that having money creates happiness. Um, sharing money with others creates happiness. So they might be someone who is constantly thinking about how to attain more money, but also lavishly expressing love to others by giving them gifts and buying certain things, taking them out to dinner. And so for someone to identify with money worship, all of the scripts have pros and cons, right? Like it's kind of in balance of like where Mm. things are healthy and where things are unhealthy. And so for money worship, they might feel like they have a better relationship with their money to a point. Yeah. (laughs) I imagine the listeners right now playing people's names in their heads. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, if I, like, oh, well, hopefully they're evaluating yeah. themselves first. That's what I'm doing because I know yes. I'm an avoider for sure. I know I am. Uh, but I, as you started going into the money worship, I started to think about people. And I'm sure as you go into three and four, I'll, I'll start to picture some people as well. Yeah, absolutely. So money script number three would be money status. And again, these are no particular order. This is just how I've memorized them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Money status is more commonly seen in someone who is younger. So we see this more in our 20-somethings who come into money. Could be an inheritance. Could be that they're working their first significant job out of school um, or out of their parents' house. Uh, For the youngest generation, it feels like there's some freedom here that maybe they haven't had before. If someone's coming from humble beginnings or poverty, this could feel really significant of like, I have more money than I know what to do with. This feels different. So some people will respond by buying things of status. So like name brands, labels, buying fancy cars, focusing on objects. Whereas others will say money status is really representative. Like I want to be seen a certain way by the community. So we might see this in certain industries where image is important. First impressions are important. So some of this is reinforced by society. And some of this is that internal belief that to have money means you have to show people that you have money. Mm. Now, some of your listeners are going, but wait, I know plenty of people who have lots of money who never show it lavishly at all. Yes, that is also possible. Yeah. Or we have multimillionaires who wear the same clothes they've always worn or are very like below the radar because they don't mm. want to be seen or treated differently because of their money. We'll get to number four as well. I, I'm curious though, so far, because I'm looking at avoidance and money worship, mm-hmm. money status. 
I can see why people who are money avoidant would seek your services. And, and, and my assumption is maybe they're even the highest percentage of the people who seek your service. But do people who are fit in these money uh, worship and money status categories, they also find your services? They do. I think the status, it's a little bit more complicated because it's hard to put people into that box as easily, mm. especially when I've had a colleague give me another example where it was here was someone with a medical condition that actually makes them present differently to the population, like first impression. Sure. And so they actually used money status to have people see them with respect. Right. So that was an interesting outlier to what yeah. we would consider the traditional expectation of money status. So for this person, they were like, I don't want your pity. I don't want you to treat me any differently. So I'm going to dress myself a certain way with status so that you don't see me as someone who's not able-bodied. It's just an example. Even maybe with money status, part of the challenge that you have is that you want people to perceive you in a certain way and getting help would, would challenge that. Yeah. So like uh, it's incongruent, right? But maybe that's yeah. why they're coming to financial therapy. It's like, oh, I have the money to actually evoke a certain status and I'm still not happy. I'm still yeah. not satisfied. And I think the same goes for money worship of like, I'm seeking happiness, but I'm still not happy. The science says that you'd have to make an income of 75,000 currently to, to say at that level, anything above that doesn't actually change happiness. 75,000 a year. Now that'll change with inflation, I'm sure <laughs> as we go forward. But in yeah. this moment, that really speaks to people who are like fixated on, I need to make six figures or five figures or whatever that looks like. Because we're saying that after you get to 75K, it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually impact your happiness in a positive way, Yeah, which is fascinating to me. Because what do you do when you make more money? You spend more money, you right? Spend it. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> which could cause a different problem. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, yeah, I don't make tons of money, but I used to not make a lot of money and I felt like I had more money then than I do now. So you know, you can make a more, a lot more money, but spend a lot more money and, and feel broke. Yeah. And that little saying that some of us have heard for years of you have to spend money to make money is interesting yeah. as a business owner where it's like, oh, I have to have a lot of expenses, but I'm growing. Yeah. And it's like, but do I really, you know, that was yeah. the challenge for a lot of us is can I do this differently than what's been modeled before? Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So what's number four? Money vigilance. <laughs> this would be the stereotype of Scrooge without the negative image of like someone who really holds tightly to their money. Yeah. Um, someone who's very much about, I want to know exactly what's coming in, what's going out. I'm very aware of all, where all my money is. If it's in a portfolio, if it's in a savings account, if it's in checking or uh, it's cash under the mattress. Uh, this person feels that if they hold on to their money, they have the most stability that they're going to feel at peace because they have enough. Um, which as you can already start to think about that can be problematic because yeah. what is enough? How do we have each person define what enough is? This person is more likely to be a workaholic because of this script. So these are all four very different categories, right? And maybe each category has a different measure of progress, but generally how do you measure progress when you're working with people who struggle with money? Is it a feeling thing? Is it an action thing? How do you measure that? It's a little bit of both. So it usually starts with just the fact that they're having regular conversations with someone, in this case, me, mm -hmm. about money is huge, right? Especially if someone comes from more money avoidance, they don't talk about money. Uh, they don't talk about it with their friends. They don't talk about it with their family or their partner. If they have a partner, it's just not spoken about. So there's this beautiful exposure that's happening where I start a session by saying, what did you notice in your money this week? And mm -hmm. it could be something small, like I noticed that I was okay checking the bank account versus someone saying, oh my gosh, my car broke down and I spiraled out completely negatively because I did not have $600 to fix it. Mm -hmm. And we process all of that. 
So I think it starts very emotional, which is why it's, we call it money healing. And most of my clients have a mental health therapist and then have me as their financial therapist to do different parts of the work. Um, but if they start in money healing, then we see a positive change in behavior. So now if they have a different script, like, or send me a different message, like money flows or money comes and goes, or mm -hmm. the message I want to give my daughter is that money is a tool to use with intention. So that was what came out of my own work because I want mm -hmm. her to see it as something that could benefit her, but that doesn't rule her life and that it should be used thoughtfully uh, based on my own money scripts and things that are going on. So if people can start to have a different emotional relationship with money, then we see behaviors improve. So maybe now uh, the universe is giving them an opportunity with a prom promotion and they're accepting it wholeheartedly, whereas before they would have said, what's the catch? Um, I've had people one person's coming to mind right now in private practice. Again, most of my case, I was therapist right now. Just yeah. I love them. <laughs> um, she was trying to think about going from a nine to five job with stability and benefits to working for herself, which a lot of us are told, this is how, you know, you've made it in mental mm -hmm. health work is if you mm -hmm. work for yourself in private practice. And she had a lot of fears, understandably. And all of a sudden she was told, Hey, the office that you've been using is no longer available. And it's actually pushing her into an opportunity to grow into private practice faster than she would have imagined. Yeah. And she's more open to that now than before we started, because we've addressed some of those fears. Yeah. Fear is a big one with people. And I think about myself too. I mean, I think about some decisions that I've made in regards to money and the, the times that I missed out, I'm using air quotes, missed out are times where I made decisions based on fear. Right. So that's mm -hmm. a, that's a real thing where people is is making decisions based on fear. And there's this another expression. I don't know if you ever use this because it may be an unhealthy expression that scared money doesn't make money, right? Oh, I have not heard that. I haven't heard that. Yeah, powerful. Yeah, scared money doesn't make money. And so what that means is that people who are able to take risks and you know, obviously you don't want to just be throwing money at anything. You want to take calculated risks, but people who can take those risks reap the rewards of those risks. So. Scared money doesn't make money. Well, and I think that ties into your original question of like, how, what do we see in people who do this work? And I think one of the biggest things is that they go from reactive to proactive. So instead of being like, I didn't expect my car to break down and now it did. And now I'm spiraling because I don't have that money set aside. One of the skills we teach is like, what would it be like to have that money just in case, mm -hmm. whether we call it savings or cushion or emergency, like whatever word resonates with the person emotionally mm -hmm. is what we look for. Mm -hmm. Like, what would it be like to address the debt and save? Like, how do we give you the best of both worlds? And most people, at least in my generation, were told when you have a savings account, you don't touch it. And so mm -hmm. now it's like, what if I told you you have a savings account you don't touch, but then a savings account for your next vacation or for a car in case you need something. And people are having to wrap their head around this because it's different. And yeah. yet it really addresses the deprivation that was happening before, which is, let's say you make $3,000 a month a bunch of it goes towards your bills. You have a thousand dollars left. If you put all of that in savings, you're in deprivation because you have nothing to lean back on if something happens, something you didn't expect. It's like a diet. It actually fails because uh -huh. we don't feel good being like, yes, it's all in savings, but I don't have a life that I'm enjoying. Yeah. My lifestyle is restricted because I'm saying everything goes to savings. So I'm really challenging clients to say, can you have the best of both worlds? Can you save and have some money to have a quality life here and now? Yeah. And it's really about reducing some of those symptoms too. So maybe it's anxiety, stress, fear. And if a lot of that is coming from money, then that's probably part of the measure of, of the progress. 
measure progress being both actions and feelings. But if you if you can talk about money, if you can look at your bank account, if you can maybe take some risks uh, in regards to money and not have it paired with that stress, that anxiety that really kind of cripples them, then that probably tells you you're making progress. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Another term that I thought was interesting was noble poverty. Saw... <laughs> How did I know you were going to look at that on the website? <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't looking for that. I think it yeah. found it found me, but I'm a social worker. And what I started hearing very quickly when I started to go to school, probably the first month of going to school to be in the field that I am is that we're not in this for the money. And that mm-hmm. became a message I just replayed and replayed and replayed. And I'll admit, like at first I kind of accepted. I just accepted the fact that I'm going to be helping people because that's what I want to do. And I'm not going to be able to reap a lot of financial benefit. And that's just the way it is. And I'm going to deal with that. As I progressed in my career, I realized, well, there actually is ways to make money. <laughs> and what this message I think did to me, and I think it does it to other people as well, is it just forces us to take a discount and also create situations where people can take advantage of us. Mm-hmm. Our profession is is one of few professions that has that statement that we tell ourselves all the time that we're not in it for the money. It's okay if we don't make money. Other professions, I feel like they understand their value. And so instead of just accepting this, they they seek out the reimbursement that matches their value. Right. Is that what you see oftentimes? 100%. I mean, I think of the mental health professionals I have, I would say 90% are social workers. So I think they would actually say, <laughs> hell yeah, to what you just yeah. shared, which is, this isn't just our own stuff. This has been reinforced from grad school onward of like, you're only worth, uh, you're only worthwhile if you're helping others and not asking for much in return right? Of like, it's all give, 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 it's not take, or, oh my gosh, you want to charge $200 an hour? How could you? That's not helping people. Yeah. Or, you know, you're working with someone who has a low SES or comes from humble beginnings. And now, you know, to even ask them for that is just insensitive and horrible, right? Like there's all these messages from grad school onward. And that's a lot to like unpack and then rewrite for ourselves, which mm-hmm. is, can I help people, which is still the passion and can I pay my bills or support my family or work towards retirement someday? Like, can I do both and not be considered a horrible professional if I'm charging X amount per hour? And so I know this is prevalent in helping professions, but to your point, it's not the same for doctors. Like we expect Mm -hmm. them to charge higher amounts than we would because of the level of education they've done and all those things. So I love the colleagues in our industry who are saying like, I've been in school for 14 years. Like I will charge what I need to charge to show my worth, but it takes a lot of work to get there for so many because it just feels so uncomfortable. And this is all coming up because people, they, when they decide to raise their rates, this all shows up every time, <laughs> every single time where they have the anxiety, the doubt, and then the worry of accusations of you're a horrible person if you charge for what you do. Yeah, and I think that there's a way to balance those too. There's ways to to give back through uh, a sliding scale, through pro bono, even what you do with your money too, I think shows your value of money and your willingness to give back as well. So I think I think that there's a lot of different ways to help people at the same time being paid what we're worth, with, which I think is really important. And it's interesting because I'm a professor as well. And sometimes we talk about the business side of what we do. And it's very uncomfortable for people. 
and you can see students squirming in their seat and they're not used to having those business conversations in grad school because it's all about help people help people but what they also i think is important for them to understand i heard an expression a couple of years ago and it resonated with me was that if there's no margin there's no mission and so essentially what that means is even even nonprofits have to operate within a margin and if they don't, then they can't continue to do what they do. Right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think one of my ultimate goals is to go back into the grad schools and teach them a different way to talk about this. Because if your experience was in the first month of grad school to hear these messages over and over again, I think that's still happening. Because obviously, we're you and I are both working with other professionals. We're echoing yeah. that this has been cemented in them. And so it's really hard to have it change. And it'd be nice to say, can we start with the grad schools to make this better, to mm-hmm. have that next generation have a different relationship with money or business or working with people? So for your listeners who are like, well, what does noble poverty actually look like? I think that would be a question they might have is yeah. it will be dynamics like I'm afraid to raise my rates because it'll upset my clients. I'm afraid I'll be accused of being greedy if I ask for a late payment that a client has not submitted. I will be, I'm afraid of being judged by my peers if I go to private pay only versus taking insurance. Like these are just examples in our industry. Um, But even in the nonprofit sector, you know, I had a client once who moved from corporate into nonprofit because they were like, I want a passion project. I want to feel fulfilled. And then realized that they couldn't make money to even pay their bills. And they're like, I feel horrible because now I have to choose between making a living and my passion project. And so we had to rework, like, how do you do both much to what you've said, Jamie? Like, how do we Mm -hmm. have the passion project and still make money, whether it's a secondary income stream or another way to go about this, uh, so that we don't feel like we're a piece of crap <laughs> for making these decisions. Yeah, and there's other professions as impact as well, I'm sure. I mean, I think about just a quick one that comes to mind is education and educators. I mean, they mm-hmm. where I go to first is what's another profession where they don't get paid what they're worth oftentimes? And the first thought that came to mind was educators. 100%, so, especially in this pandemic, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Well, yeah, it becomes even more apparent when your heart, your job gets harder, right? So yes. if you get paid, if you don't get paid very well and your job's easy, then you can, you know, you can deal with it. But if you don't get paid very well and your job keeps getting more difficult and more difficult, that's where that discrepancy comes from. And and then you may, may make different decisions. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of different professions that this could impact. You know, you mentioned uh, inflation, expenses are getting higher for everything. There's also discussions about a recession. Are we in a recession? Is a recession coming? You know, people don't even know if, 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 or when we'll be in a recession, right? Right. Right. But we're in an interesting time as it comes to, to finances and our economy. So what are some quick steps or at least some things that people can do to, to be mindful about their money as we're in this in these interesting times. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people assume that I would say have a budget, <laughs> which yeah. in financial therapy, budget is a bad word. We don't mm. like budgets. Interesting. I guess that concept of deprivation, right? So if a budget by principle is I have $200 to spend on this thing and $400 to spend on groceries, et cetera, et cetera, and I, and ex- I exceed it or I blow through that budget, how's that going to make me feel? horrible, right? Of like, oh, I failed. I can't do this. So we actually have redirected people to the concept of a spending plan. And how that's different is we encourage people to think of all the possible possible things, all the possibilities in a month that could come up. 
It could be everything from, I want to spend some time with family. I want to do this excursion. Holidays are coming up. I've got some holiday shopping to do, Mm -hmm. right? Like try and anticipate every single thing that could be something you spend money on. And then we have them categorize that. So instead of saying you have $200 to spend on food, now it's okay, we want to make sure you have X amount towards food, uh, just so it's planned. So Mm -hmm. there's no surprises. So this takes away the anxiety. This looks a lot more empowering than a budget. And for so many people, it helps them plan for the worst case, which is the unexpected periodic expenses, like a car Mm -hmm. breaking down or a vet bill because the dog got sick. So if they can like factor all those things in per month, even if it's once a year, I have my license renewal. So there's an amount I don't think about very often. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden they have it set aside instead of that reaction. Now they're proactive and saying it's there. It's accounted for. There's no surprises. Yeah. I like that being proactive. So that's one strategy is just to rethink how to manage our money, which is going from budget to a spending plan and saying, I want to anticipate everything so that I feel prepared. There's no spiraling out. There's no negativity because it's like, it's there if I need it. And if not bonus, I have extra money every month. If I don't spend it on the thing, it's still sitting there. Uh, So that's one strategy. Just real quick on that one. What would you recommend for like a template for like a spending plan? Uh, do you offer any or do you have any thoughts as to where people might find a, a spending plan template? Yeah. So some people start with an old school Excel spreadsheet where mm-hmm. they can look at all the things they spend money on every month. You can grab, you know, a budget to start to say, what are those categories? Everything from food to clothes to mm-hmm. car to car insurance, et cetera. If that's helpful just to like grab the things. I have often have clients just look at their bank statements and start categorizing based on what they see in there. Cause again, that's exposure. So I want them mm-hmm. to like notice like, sure. Oh my gosh, Uber eats is on there five times. <laughs> I don't realize I ate out that much or whatever narrative comes up. I use food as the example a lot because for some reason, Americans believe that food is a luxury, which is interesting to me because they're like, Oh, if I spent $50 on takeout, I'm a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like that, where'd that come from? <laughs> um, So for a lot of them, it's like grabbing their own bank statements and saying, what are the expenses? Are they even aware? You know, is there an Amazon charge here? Is there Uber Eats there? Is there a Netflix charge? Like, what are the things that aren't really on the radar all the time? And creating a budget with an Excel spreadsheet. There are also some really great apps out there. So the one I personally like the best is Tiller HQ, which Mm -hmm. is a way of forecasting not just the monthly expenses, but the whole year. So if someone is thinking about like, I want to take a vacation at the holiday season or I have this much continued education to purchase. <laughs> How do I factor that into the monthly budget so it feels like it's balanced? Yeah. There's YNAB, there's Money Grit. Those are kind of the top three that all do forecasting versus like the free app Mint, which just shows you what you've already spent. So that's helpful yeah. to some folks, but if you're trying to plan ahead, Mint is not your app for that because they only show you what you've already done. Yeah, that's great. So you're giving us some free advice and I want to take advantage of your time and you're going to say, give us a second one that's free. Right. <laughs> and so what's the, what, what else can people do? My personal favorite, I do this myself and teach this to clients is that concept of having multiple savings accounts. Mm, uh, so yep. now we have a savings that is for emergencies. I call it cushion. So that's the word I use a lot with clients because it feels so much nicer than saying emergency or catastrophic. But <laughs> that sounds awful. That's what you always say. Uh, you always say emergency account. Do you have an emergency yeah. account, right? Well, I had a, a health insurance account when, when I was first starting in private practice and it was literally called catastrophic PTO plan. <laughs> and I was like, this feels awful. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I hope I never have to use this. <laughs> 
Um, so the power of words, right? Like as mental yeah. health professionals, we know the power of words. So the first yeah. thing I have clients do is think about, can I get some separated accounts within the bank that I work within? So it could be Chase, Wells Fargo, any of the big banks, or it could be a credit union if they have that option. Of course, we want to avoid fees because fees just piss people off. Um, so, you know, how much money do you have to have in each of these accounts to not accrue a fee? That might be something to research first. But once they have that option, now it's like, can you have one for emergency? Can you have one for that vacation or that new car or whatever you're working towards? So we can see visually that there's an account we're really not touching in case, you know, and absolutely we don't need it uh, versus this one we're going to tap into because it has an intention. It's labeled as such. So all the big banks allow you to nickname your accounts, which is fantastic. Yeah, Because now good. you can actually say money for Maui if you're going to Maui. Now you can say new BMW if that's what you want or whatever. I'm embodying my clients right now. Um, <laughs> one, it's I want to start a family. I'm going to have a baby. And they yeah. put that as their account name. And that's really reinforcing to why we're all working so hard to save money. So every time you're logging in, not only are you having the exposure of checking your numbers, now you have a reinforcement of this is why I'm working my butt off because I'm working towards that. So by separating these things out, it doesn't feel so visceral of like, I had an account for a vacation, but now I had to tap into it for a car repair. That just makes most of us angry. So like we want separate accounts that have different amounts in them to make this emotionally easier. Yeah, this is great stuff. It's really good advice. I often don't take a lot of notes during my podcast interviews, but I ran out of space. I don't have any more space <laughs> left. So I I certainly appreciate all the advice, both for the listeners and for myself. When I was cruising around on your website too, I also found the financial therapy at your fingertips workbook. Small fee, I think is $15, but felt like it was worth it because I have some work to do. And especially <laughs> after our conversation, I'm like, yeah, I should probably put some intentional effort in how I feel about money. That's how you put it. And that was great. Like I need to to put some work into that. And and I know mm-hmm. I've I know I've needed to put some work into that for a long time. So how can people access resources or your services, Carrie? Yeah. So definitely through the website, which hopefully you'll post here in the show notes for me. Um yeah, definitely that financial therapy at your fingertips was the expression from clients of like, I want your favorite exercises and I want them handy. And so those are six of my favorite exercises, one of which we talked about today, which is naming your accounts and how powerful that can be. Be Like this one is for this thing. This is for the other thing. Um, So that's been my passion project this year to like put a workbook together saying, Hey, these are the common exercises I do with clients, um, which can be a nice starting place for people versus if they want more, then hopefully they come into a session and give it a try and see if they like it. Yeah, that's awesome. So you got your website, you've got the workbook. And since we're at it, I know you do a lot of other things too. So tell us a few <laughs> a few of the other things that you got going on. Oh gosh. Well, the financial therapy world, I work mostly with entrepreneurs, mental health therapists, small business owners, those are and creatives. Those are kind of the four groups of people that I attract in that arena. I'm still a mental health therapist as well. So I work mostly with grad students, high functioning anxiety, workaholism, burnout, mm-hmm. and perfectionism. Go figure. <laughs> Your people, JB. Um <laughs> I also am a professor, so I'm teaching the newest generation of therapists, which is super fun and exciting, very rewarding, and I write a bunch of books. So I've written on workaholism, clinical supervision. I have a new book coming out on mother-daughter estrangement Mm. and how to help adult women heal from that difficult choice. I'm really excited about that because I feel like that's an unanswered experience so far. So from the lens of trauma, abuse, neglect, we're going to talk about women and how they can heal from that estrangement. 
Well, that's awesome. And I appreciate you spending the time with us today. You've got a lot going on. You should probably go take a nap is what you should probably do. <laughs> More like it. attend to my infant, but yeah. Yeah, now that's, too, so yeah there's that. there you go. There's that. You didn't even mention that. That's another full-time job. But I appreciate yeah. you spending all the time. And I know that you helped some people today. And one of those people's name is Jamie Glick. So I appreciate for free, side note. So I appreciate all the help uh, that you provided for our listeners and all the insights. So, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for having me. You have just listened to the All In Your Head podcast. Learn more by following Jamie Glick on LinkedIn or by subscribing to the Mental Health Training Camp YouTube channel. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call now or text 988 to get connected to free confidential support. Thanks for listening.